Right, no, no, I, I get that, but uh, it's a plant of Derek Crabtree's. How big could it be? Hold on, Brett just walked in. Uh, I'll, I'll call you back. Hey, there's the big man. Finally, shit. What's the uh, the big emergency that I, has been here on a Saturday morning, for God's sake? Well, I am glad that you asked, Travis. So uh, I'd like you to go ahead and take a quick look at this here pamphlet. Um, I was just wondering, uh, have you ever really thought about what happens to uh, all the discarded oil we do after doing the oil changes here? Uh, I mean, no, I, I throw it in the dumpster out back. Okay, we're going to address that later because I'm pretty sure that that is an environmental crisis that you're creating. Um, but we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to try and come up with a, a better option for you to, to approach that. How about that? Um, as you know, Doug Jones over from AutoZone, he's got a cousin, Frank. He splits a timeshare with the guy. Or I, I'm not exactly sure what the details are there, but he's looking for some investors in some kind of startup. So I was thinking maybe we can approach him with with our problem and maybe we can we can figure something out. Wait. Doug, his cousin. Wait, who, whose business is it? Uh, it's uh, Doug's. But I, I thought, I thought you Listen, said it's it's all in the brochure. I don't. It doesn't matter whose business it is here. Just <gasps> take, just look at the brochure. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, okay. So, where's your oil? Go. What is is this supposed to say? Going. Where's your oil going? It's kind of a wordplay off of the guy. the The owner's name is is Kurt Goins. Wait, I thought the owner was Frank. This is getting a little no, complex no, 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 no. for my taste. Frank owns the timeshare. Kurt is the guy who's going to take care of the oil. Okay, so Kurt told you about this. Look, it's all on the packet, all right? But listen, Ronald said you were going to be in on this, all right? Whoa, so whoa, 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 whoa. Ronald? Ronald fucking Russo is involved? No, 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 no. I'm out. If Ronald fucking Russo is involved, no. I don't have time for Ron fucking Russo's amateur hour fucking sloppy Russo bullshit. I do, however, have time to review No Sudden Move, which we do next. After a botched babysitting job, a couple of down-on-their-luck crooks must uncover the mysteries of their setup while seemingly trying to outwit each other. It's not long before everyone starts to look guilty of something as they unravel the true driving force behind their detail. It's a who's who of who's gonna get away with a heist at a star-studded caper in America's Motor City. In our review of No Sudden Move. Hello everybody, we are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. As always, Travis, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, what is your, what's your quick diagnosis? What did you think of No Sudden Move? Well, before we get started, Brett, I was, do you mind if I sit in the back? I, I, I like to sit in the back. <laughs> uh, just, just sit in the front. Uh, okay. Oh, you're not going to stab me in the neck or anything, are you? <laughs> um, no, I, I really liked this movie. Uh, I had very high expectations uh, because Steven Soderbergh is one of those filmmakers that, like, you pretty much don't have to tell me anything beyond Steven Soderbergh is involved, and I'll give it an honest chance. Um, in many ways, it, it met my expectations. I, I think the only complaints I'm really going to have about this movie is sometimes it just tries to do too much and, and be too much, and, and I would even say down to the way the film is shot, uh, to me, it, it's trying to do too much. It feels a little overstuffed. Uh, but it, all in all, I enjoyed it. What about you? Uh, yeah, I'm going to... Uh, I have to agree. I, I actually really, really enjoyed this movie. I wasn't... It's one of those movies that I'll... 
I'll say the best comparison I have is watching like The Dark Knight. I remember back in the day talking about that. Like that's a movie that as soon as it starts, you know you're going to enjoy this movie. Like um, I didn't have a whole lot of expectation going into this. Um, as many people know on the show, I typically look at like the art side of the film and Travis is more about like the casting and the directors and actually knowing people's names. It's just kind of, you know, how our odd couple works here. But um, so it wasn't until actually after I watched the movie that I went back and, and looked at a lot of what um, Soder Soderbergh, Soderbergh, Soden yes. Sodenbergen, um, Soderbergh did. But um, and I, the same thing, if I if I had known his name, who his name was attached to it, um, I definitely would have I would have watched it anyway. It is a shame that this was an HBO you know straight to hbo and didn't hit theaters not that i i don't know if it would have done super well especially in theaters right now um just with the the genre of movie it is but at the end of the day i i really really did enjoy this movie i did have a one or two little well one little gripe and one larger gripe which i'm sure you're probably going to have the same same complaint about um we'll see but overall i thought it was a fantastic film i um you know, just I guess I'll just, you know, go ahead and jump two feet into into what I love. I, I thought this is by far my favorite Don Cheadle role I've ever seen him in. I loved Don Cheadle in this movie. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think both him and Benicio Del Toro are kind of I won't say at the top of their games. But, yeah, I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of a movie that I've enjoyed Don Cheadle more in. I think uh you would think maybe Ocean's Eleven, but he's got he's burdened with doing that accent in Ocean's Eleven. Mm -hmm. So I never feel like he gets to have as much fun as, say, a Clooney or a Pitt or a Matt Damon. Mm -hmm. um, but in this movie, it, it it's good to see him be the guy and um, I don't know, just get to be the cool character that ends up winning the day. Um, we mentioned Soderbergh earlier. He did another Detroit crime film called Out of Sight. Uh, which Don Cheadle is also excellent in. Um, so if you liked him in this, uh, I would definitely recommend checking that out, both you and our audience. For sure, for sure. Um, it was one of those things before we watched it, it's like, you know, you read the HBO synopsis, and it's like, there's star-studded cast, and I'm like, yeah, everybody loves to say star-studded, but holy shit, there is a lot of talent in this movie. Like, I mean, in... Again, I try and go into as many of these like these newer movies bl as blind as possible, just so I don't have preconceived notions, but I mean, you got John... John Don Cheadle, Benicio del Toro, David Harbour, who you know most people know from Stranger Things. John Hamm, I won't say it's a cameo. He's but he's not a, a major uh, character. Brendan Motherfucking Fraser is making a comeback in Hollywood, which I don't know what your opinion is. I love to see it. I I am glad to see that Brendan. He's a fat motherfucker now, but I'm glad <laughs> to see that he is getting more work. I actually did because so. Uh, not to you get know, too look, real quick. I was gonna say it kindly. I was gonna say it looks like the years have not been great to him in certain departments. But way to just rip the bandaid off and call my man fat. So I actually, not to get too far off subject, I got into a series called um, the Doom Patrol, which was like a you know DC for all of their shitty ass movies. Like they actually have pretty good series, and he plays um, Robot Man, which is as hokey as it sounds but um in that show and like it was one of those things where i was like where the fuck has brendan Fraser been for so long and he you know he doesn't look as big as he in that show as he does in this but like still still a larger guy and it's like apparently like after i think it was like the mummy three like he had a ton of health problems and like basically had to eject himself out of hollywood because he just like 
went through some real health crises and that's why he's so much overweight right now but like i said as much as you know his career got off on georgia the jungle and you know uh what is it dudley do right and all that like i very much enjoyed him in this movie too i thought he did a stellar job as as doug yeah absolutely because you wonder you know especially health problems being out of the game for so long this is a definitely an actor's movie that some of the dialogue in here you just as an actor i would imagine that you love getting to to say that and i'm not sure that brendan fraser in his career has ever really gotten the opportunity like he you know he started out as kind of action hero guy in the mummy uh, or dumb guy in encino man so i've never seen him have the opportunity to deliver funny dialogue and and i thought he killed every scene he was in yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only other time I can think of a real, like, serious role, because I think he did, what was the one where, like, he lived in a bunker and came out of the bunker and something like that, but a crash. Are we calling that Blast from the Past? Blast Are we from that the serious? Past. Wow, I could not remember Blast from the Past, because it's a blast from the past. Um, a Crash is probably the most serious role I can remember him being in, but yeah, this is definitely a an actor's role, as you said. So, I love seeing him. Um, Kieran McCulkin? One of the McCulkin brothers, uh, as as Charlie was was fantastic. What, I'm sorry, what did you call him? Kieran McCulkin. Kieran McCulkin. Kieran Culkin. Col- he he's not his brother. His brother is Macaulay. Macaulay, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's, Kieran Culkin. It's not. It's not Cully take McCulkin. A drink, tr- I think it's Cully take McCulkin. Take a drink. Brett fucked up a name. Take a drink if you're listening at home. <laughs> I do believe I prefaced the this king episode. of Staten Island. I prefaced this by saying. Names were not my thing. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and then uh, Matt Damon has a has a cameo in it that was very very good when he shows up. Yeah, you know, speaking of trying to go into these blindly, I fucked up and looked at the Wikipedia page for this before we watched it, mm-hmm. and they list Matt Damon in the cast, which was a little disappointing because I felt like that was meant to be a surprise, but it, it was still great to see him show up. I, I love that role. What'd you think about Frank when Frank showed up? Well, to get back to our opening, <laughs> if I do have a complaint about this movie, it's all the fucking names. Frank is Ray Liotta, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Th- I'll, I'll save the complaint, but yeah, I, I loved Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta, you want to talk about dialogue? It, it, I don't... I can't name an actor that I'd like to hear swear more than Ray Liotta. I don't I know about you. I you fucking him. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> you're talking funny. about, Frank. He just confirmed it. <laughs> <laughs> I do. And such a, like, it's like that had, had such little influence on the plot, but him just, like, basically, like, that little subplot of him finding out that those two were screwing was like was phenomenal to me because it it pushes it forward enough and it gets you where it needs to be with you know spoiler alert frank's demise but like again him basically playing them against each other to get that information i loved that little that little chunk in the movie because yeah because this is such a movie about deception and double crossing things so i like when movies can nail the bigger theme of the movie and just a small joke like that that's the sign of quality directing and script writing to me listen travis she's she's your she's your wife she's out of my league 
you know? It, it was the out of my league. It's like, <laughs> it's not enough to be like, I would never do that to you. Like, that's not convincing enough. I have to say, well, you know, even if I wanted to, she's out of my league. Like, just the amount of bullshit between those two characters was phenomenal. And yeah, the, the comedic timing of as soon as Ray Liotta walks him out and turns around, he, he just confirmed it. Yeah, uh, brilliant. Um, but to kind of piggyback what you were saying is, I mean, in the first 10, 15 minutes of this movie, they unpack so much backstory, and I don't know if lore is the right, you know, word to use in this genre of, of movie and all that, but, like, they're throwing out names and, oh, after what happened at Gotham and all this, I'm like, they're throwing so much at you to establish, like, there's a history with these characters, like, they they come, like, this is kind of their life, they're, they're, they're crooks and stuff like that, but I agree, at a certain point, it just felt like they were just adding one more name. It's like, oh, it's Frank. Now, uh, Frank or Watkins wants me. I don't know, Frank, Watkins, or Doug, and I'm like, holy, there's so many fucking names being thrown out here right now. I don't know who's a legitimate concern. Are these characters we're actually going to meet? Or is this just like, we're, again, we're throwing out random backstory so that you, un, you know, we're establishing that these characters have existed in this world? Yeah, and I think when I really, I really enjoyed the opening of the movie, somewhere in the middle, I, I started to get frustrated with the, the use of names and things. And I kind of just made a conscious decision to, you know what, I, I think most of this is going to end up being a MacGuffin anyway. So let me just try to enjoy the things I like, dialogue, etc. I feel like the story will get me there in the end. Uh, now, I may, it may have some value to rewatch it. But at a certain point, I was like, you know what, there's no way that they don't know that this is confusing. And I'm thinking ultimately they're saying, you know what? It doesn't really matter. Right. Did you get that vibe? Yes, I did. Um, it was one of those where I wasn't sure if it was going to not matter. My thought was with the name, no sudden move. And as they continued to throw character names out there, I was really expecting a Mexican standoff at the end of this film. I really thought that that's what they were leading up to almost like a, um, what is it? True love. What's the what's the Tarantino true romance? True romance, like a true romance style or something like that. Or even I don't want to say, you know, uh, the God damn it. I am so bad I'm with my names right now. I apologize to the audience. Um, well, let me let me ask you if you felt like because the ending I foresaw was going to be more akin to The Departed, where you keep characters keep meeting their demise like you think this character is going to get away with the money and they're killed like so when benicio del toro gets shot which love the way they depicted that happening um but i thought it was just going to be a domino effect if she has the money for a little bit she gets killed it kind of plays out that way but ultimately just to serve john ham being the cop who returns things back to the status quo right i um i do like that you brought up that scene because i was going to bring it up i thought it I know that you say you loved it. I thought it was weird how they decided to kill him off with. <clears throat> so he gets Vanessa shoots I, well, him. Let me clarify. I don't love narratively that it happened. Mm -hmm. Like, I just love the way it was filmed to reveal that he had been shot. Right. Or betrayed. So, yeah. you know, he, he's been drinking alcohol the entire um, movie. He's constantly pulling on his flask and all that. So she shoots him. It's supposed to be in the back, but somehow it hits his flask in his, his breast pocket, right? So he pulls right. out the the flask, and it reveals the bullet. And I'm like, oh, this is the moment where, like, I don't know, does she apologize or something like that? But basically, it's just enough so that he can turn and face her, and then she says sorry and shoot him in the head. And I'm like, 
that's a very strange way to do that where it's like you think the hero is saved but it's like no he just he's it, his death is inevitable he's going to die he's it's only delayed it so that he can face his his murderer face to face well i'm glad you brought up the alcohol because i was going to mention that the, there's the scene where he's at dinner with don Cheadle and he offers don Cheadle the wine and uh, Don Cheadle's basically like, no, I like to keep a clear mind, something mm -hmm. to that effect. And so, yeah, I noticed that every every time they were in those situations, Don Cheadle would never drink and Benicio Del Toro would. And I, I couldn't quite, other than to show that he was a little bit maybe incompetent sloppy? or reckless. Sloppy? Sloppy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you say but he's like, sloppy, Travis? <laughs> well, and then there's also the line of dialogue about the dishes. Do you remember that line? Yeah, to me that was that was. I just can't bring myself to do the dishes. That was. And then he also says, "What if you don't want the things you're supposed to want?" I couldn't tell what kind of character he was supposed to be, other than sloppy and irresponsible. I think he was just supposed to be a free a free spirit who was lost, who'd kind of lost his way. Because then they bring up the fact that essentially he could have gotten a job with GM and basically turned that down. And then you see where you know he's basically a two bit you know crook you know, working for Frank and, and, you know, messing around with Frank's wife and stuff like that, where it's like, he's, I don't know if I want to say, go so far as to say he's self-destructive so much as like, he just, his lifestyle was not one to be pinned down, you know? And it's even to the point where like, he's asking Frank, like, just send me to Reno. I just, I just need a new start. I just need somewhere to begin. It just seemed like he was lost, you know? Okay. That makes, that tracks, that makes sense. Cause yeah, it, there was so much going on in the movie that, uh, I kind of stopped thinking about them as characters up until the point where I was like, you know what? I'm not going to worry about Frank or Mr. Jones. I'm like, Let, let's just enjoy it. So yeah, I think I only got half the picture because I was too focused on trying to follow the, the shell game that this movie plays. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> yeah, like I, said, I just, like I said, it was very strange for me to, to essentially save the character so that he could immediately be killed off again. Like I just, like I said, it was interesting to me. I'm not quite sure what the, the motive behind that was. You know, did the alcohol save his life? And But because, he's, again, it was very, very strange to me. Um, so I thought the score of this movie was perfect. And then again, going back and, and seeing who it was Soderbergh who did this, I'm like, I think uh, when I think of some of my perfect movie scores, Ocean's Eleven comes to mind. Like, Whenever I listen to it, it's so different and unique, and whenever I think of it, I immediately think of a Ocean, Ocean's Eleven and kind of that heist or caper movie, and I'm like, I, a lot of times I will judge a movie against how well I thought the Ocean's Eleven soundtrack was, and I felt the same way with this. Like, I think Soderbergh, he knows how to pair a score to a movie. A hundred percent. You can tell that he, there's a lot of attention to detail on it. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the music because even in the first probably 30 seconds of the movie, I'm just loving the, it, it almost sounds like a, a theme to a Western playing. And it mm -hmm. just sets the stage of like, this is going to be a, a Detroit crime kind of Western. Um, and, and yeah, it just sets the tone perfectly. And, and even down to the font of the opening credits, like everything is so intentional with Soderbergh. And I appreciate that because it's it's already setting a mood for what the rest of the movie is going to be. Yeah, it, it definitely sets an expectation that never falls short. Um, as I said, just just the cast, 
again a lot of the dialogue is just it's fantastic listening to the, the how the characters interact with one another i thought even the beginning when they are talking to like you know just an average monday what would you do on a you know just a regular monday what would you do um when they essentially i don't know if you would say kidnap the family but they babysit the family uh i thought a lot of the dialogue felt very kind of natural and what was going on with that um it does lead to one of my one of the weird things i thought with the movie was essentially matt's wife i believe mary white mary was her name it was the character's name, Wirtz, Ma Mary Wirtz. Uh-huh. That character, I felt like, was somewhat out of place in the overall story of what they were trying to do. Because, like, and I'll say this. There's a point where she has a dialogue with her friend. It's after, basically, she's staying at her friend's house because they've already been kidnapped and let go. They've realized that they were going to be murdered, even though that wasn't part of the plan. This, that, and the other. Mary's kind of been established as like she's kind of like unraveling a little bit like she's not the the wife you know the the Stepford wife that Matt Wirtz wants her to be and stuff like that and at a certain point like she's just kind of breaking down she goes how do you how do people do this like everything like I just don't understand like how how do you keep it going and like I thought that was going to play more into the movie and I felt like that's the last you kind of dealt with that kind of concept of like how how do people like how does the average person keep this going? Um, and I would have loved to either cut that out or have explored that a little bit more because I don't feel like that ever really gets a payoff. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I have thoughts about it as well. And I will I'll follow it up with another potential plot line that seeds are planted for and then nothing really happens with it. Um, but you're t Matt's wife... To me, that scene is clearly kind of telling us, hey, these two women are in love, but can't – it's you know, it's the 50s, so they can't display that love. Because the friend's like, you know, we can go on a trip, and she's like, well, what would that look like? Yeah, good and luck like, explaining that. Like, And yeah, yeah, it was a very – and then that's it. That's, that is how that scene ends, and then it is never addressed again. Yeah, and like – you could tell that she's just resigned to live a lie, and that's a lot of what this movie has going on, people living double lives. So that tracks, but it's just weird because it's not exactly subtle, but it never happens again. I thought ultimately this was going to lead to those two somehow getting the money and that funds their new life together. Mm -hmm. But you're right. it just It's completely dropped after that. And kind of on the same level, uh, Matt's son, at the beginning of the movie, there's a line of dialogue uh, where – uh, he's talking to his mom and he needs socks or something. Mm -hmm. And he says that he can't wear his dad's socks cause they're too big for him. Um, and obviously he's Matthew jr. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, his father's and, Matt. Uh, he's Matthew. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it, like it was doing this, like I'm in my father's shadow or I can't fill his shoes. It seemed like the storyline they were trying to tell, especially when the kid kind of does what he thinks is right and goes ahead and tells the cop. And then the mom is like, hey, your dad's going to face consequences for that. But you did the right thing. Mm -hmm. Like, again, I, I could not tell what they were trying to do with the son, because at, at time he challenges his father's authority. His father literally kind of tells him to stop back talking. He's had enough. But again, that those kind of threads are just left hanging. Yeah, that was that was one of my two major complaints with this movie was I felt that just the Wirtz family in general did not get 
the closure that they deserve. Any family, like, they're essentially brought into this as as a, a plot device, honestly, but they're given a, too much time to just be a plot device. And that's the weird part is it's like, it almost feels like, not to bring Tarantino up again, but, you know, where he decided he made a longer version of, you know, the hateful, or is it, is it the Magnificent Seven, Hateful Eight? What did he do? Hateful Eight. Hateful yeah. Eight. On Netflix, or he's going to do the same thing with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's like, is this like, is there an, a director's cut of this that has like another 20 or 25 minutes that gives us the closure we need for the Wurtz family? Or is that we're just supposed to like, no, that's the movie ends with Matt coming home. Basically, all of them are alive and okay, and it is just like it's only Tuesday. Like they, the amount that they have of work and you know stress they've gone through, basically from Monday morning to Tuesday evening. Like, what's the rest of the week going to bring us? Yeah, I think that just goes back to what I was saying. This movie is just a little overstuffed. There's mm-hmm. just a little too many ingredients in the margarita. Um, if you just pulled one or two out and and this is not an overly long movie either i was very encouraged when i started it and i was like oh this is under two hours i respect that soderbergh keeps it tight but even still it just felt like ultimately to make a movie that is we'll talk more about what we think the overall theme of the movie is but essentially uh you know the little guy's never gonna win uh if you're basically the 99 percent, you can only rise so high ever Mm -hmm. due to uh, limitations placed on you by the system. I'm just like, there's too much going on here. That's a simple concept, and I like it. I just feel like there could be one or two things removed. Well, and it, I think it adds to, I feel like somehow they there was a message to be said, but you know, Soderbergh, I don't know if he's a one-trick pony or it's just he's so good at the heist or caper genre that it's just like, we're going to, like, this is what he's going to do because he does it so well, and then we're going to try and kind of add a couple rhinestones or something, you know, we're going to try and decorate, you know, the movie after it's done and add a little bit of flair to it. But like also the, you know, the whole twist at the end about the muffler thing. And it's just like, that's really based in like reality that really did happen. And like the end of the movie comes up with that whole thing. It's like four senses about how the four big car companies essentially tried to, uh, you know, collude together to stop from admitting that they had created, you know, that there were bad emissions, especially in California, and that none of them really wanted to act on fixing the the problem because it would be too costly. So there was an antitrust against them, and none of them lost any money. They basically just had to start putting in catalytic converters under the hood. And I'm like, I, I looked over at, at Kate, who was watching it with me. I'm like, this is a very long movie and a very contrived way to get us to that like the the history lesson like i felt like this is a very strange vehicle so that they could give us that at the end you know (laughs) to close out the movie the history lesson yeah absolutely and that's why like ultimately halfway through the movie i'm like i feel like this conclusion is going to be painfully simple so i'm not gonna tire myself out by thinking about it too much and then that's exactly what happened um yeah, just uh, like I said, really love the movie. I just there's so many things that it's trying to say, and I don't quite know why on on some mm-hmm. of them. 
So, um, but I, I really want to say though, there's a couple of dialogue lines that I love because to me, the the absolute number one strength of this movie is the dialogue. Because mm-hmm. um, we were talking about Ray Liotta. Before I forget, I just have to also drop this quote. You see, Ronald, the problem is you're not smart enough to know how not smart you are, which <laughs> makes you unpredictable, which makes. Uh, uh, what's it? Well, I can't well, read my well, own writing. It's like makes you untrustworthy. Yeah. And then Brenda Fraser jumps in and sloppy. And sloppy. So sloppy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I could. The, the dialogue just sings in this movie. So I have to make sure I say that. Um, And even, I mean, Matt Damon's whole monologue about how much money he has and that, you know, essentially Kurt and Ronald, like, they think that they have an, uh, you know a, autonomy and that they're making their own decisions but really they're just you know they're still just pawns in the same in the same game and yes they might have against all odds made it to them and you know he 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 salutes them for that but at the end of the day it, it means nothing and the amount of money that they're taking from means nothing because his bank account will basically refill itself before he even realizes that there's a problem and it's just like his whole tirade about like none of this means anything to me um, type situation was was very interesting. Yeah, and I love his line. I did not create the river. I'm just paddling the raft. Yeah, like yeah, I didn't build this system, but I sure as shit am benefiting from it. Yep. So before we get into kind of like themes and all that, and what we think the overall theme is, I will say, we'll see if you. This is my biggest gripe of this movie. <laughs> is the fucking fish islands. <laughs> Oh, God. I do not understand why he did it. And I was like, I, you know, typically when we do this, I do not look up other reviews of these movies. I will try and do some research before we talk about it. But several times, anytime I came up, it was like within the first two sentences, like, it's a great movie. Don't understand why he used the Frisch Eye Lens. And like, it's a constant theme for people who watched and enjoyed this movie. It's like, no one can pinpoint what the idea behind was other than voyeurism. I'm like, but this movie doesn't have anything to do with voyeurism. I'm like, it's another one of those where it's like, it just feels like he got a new toy and decided to play with it. Cause I'm like, even if it was like the sense was to create, to make the scenes look larger or like, I thought maybe it, it, at the first times he used it, I was like, maybe it's to create focus where it's like, if the subject matter is always in the center of the fisheye, everything else becomes distorted and kind of fades out on the edges to where you're forced to focus on the most important thing. But like, then he would still set up the shot with like the, the one that comes to mind the most is there's the scene where Kurt goes to get his briefcase and he sets up the shot. Kurt is in the left side of the frame and essentially the fisheye is almost centered on the door, the exit. So Kurt is basically a little out of focus and kind of distorted. And I'm like, is there trying to say something about the exit? I'm like, it just makes no sense to me sometimes where he decided to focus the lens. Or like, there's a cool scene where it would have been a cool scene, I should say, where Matt Wirtz is walking through wherever he does his accounting, wherever he works. He's walking through the, and it's like, to me, it's supposed to look how long this is and how long this walk feels for him because he's so stressed out. But I'm like, he's not in the center of the shot. He's still on the right side of the shot. So it's like, he's still not even in focus the whole time we're walking through this corridor. And I'm like, I do not understand what the point of the fisheye lens was. It just started making me sick in some shots, why he was using it. Like, literally sick well, to my he, stomach. 
No, literally, I, I, I had the same thing. There were a couple of shots, like when there was a lot of movement, it made the background just, yeah, I felt like I was sick after riding a roller coaster on several shots. And to your point, it, it seems like nothing was shot with the fisheye lens in mind. Uh, like to your point, it's just distracting when something is in, like the movie can be telling us that we need to see this, a character's interacting with an object, and that object is painfully out of focus. Like, mm-hmm. it, it only serves as a distraction. I, I don't understand it. If it were if it were not Steven Soderbergh, I would assume it's amateur hour, but I, I know he there's a conscious decision behind it. I don't know what it is. Yeah, all I could think of is, like, is he trying to create, again, tunnel vision? Like, okay, so the, the scene with Curtis talking to, I assume it's his sister who he gave the briefcase to. It never explicitly says who it is, or maybe it was a past, like, lover who he just trusted. But, like, my thing is, like, is it supposed to be, like, mentally, like, Curtis just wants to get out of there. He wants to get the briefcase and leave, so his focus is on the door, and that's why everything else is a little out of, I'm like, Again, I just I, I continued to try and figure out what the purpose of the fisheye lens was, and all I could come up with was it's supposed to be some form of tunnel vision where we're supposed to be seeing what the focus is, but it never, to me, it never made sense, or very few times did it make sense why something would or wouldn't be in focus. It, it just felt like it was something fun to do. And ultimately, like, unlike Three Kings, I know we mentioned in the Three Kings review how it felt like a director just learned something new and wanted to use it. Uh, but this is this is by a, a measure way worse because it's literally it's every shot of the movie. So no matter how well you like this movie, to me, it, it drops a letter grade just based on that because it's so distracting and at times nauseating. Mm-hmm. So. Now that you know we've kind of you'd run our diagnostic, you know, thematically, what what did you think, you know, despite this kind of being, I guess, a couple of different kinds of movies shoved into into one bag, what did you what did you think overall, Soderbergh or the writer, I forget who the writer was, was was trying to say with this one? Um, first of all, uh, there's a couple movies to me that this, this echoes a little bit, like would be a good companion piece. And the two movies are, uh, the nice guys with, uh, Russell Crowe oh, and uh, Ryan Gosling. Yeah. The, uh, the shadiness of big auto, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is, uh, and I just lost it. Um, well, go ahead and tell me what you thought some of the themes were. Maybe it'll come back to me. Because I ha- I definitely have some some very clear ideas of what I think this movie is about. I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of it was just kind of a, I said it before, like a contrived way of just saying kind of like big corporations suck. And that ultimately kind of like the top always stays on top because at the end of the day, even the money, and it's it's doesn't even matter because, like, again, Matt Damon's character he goes on about how the money he lost paying them off means nothing. You know, it's, it's a drop in the bucket for him, but yet he gets, not only does he get all of his money back, but he gets Frank's money that Vanessa had stolen. And then he also gets the $50,000 that they were going to get from Naismith, who was the, had some kind of connection with um, Studebaker. So like he winds up actually 
compounding interest. Like money just falls in his lap. Like the universe smiles and says, oh, you think you lost your money? No, you get it back plus some, you know, a crazy amount of interest for the, you know, 30 minutes it was out of your possession. But definitely, you know, kind of the, I thought it was weird that the status quo and, and very much about like, I, I, I don't know, again, just opportunistic and, and stuff like that. The vibe I get is basically capitalism is destroying the country. I mean, down to the fact that you, you set it in Detroit, uh, a city that is, you know, kind of in ruins due to, you know, financial mismanagement and money not being prioritized for certain things and money going to other things. Obviously, the uh, the gentrification stuff is mm -hmm. touched on. Um, but what I find interesting is the whole movie, we kind of think Don Cheadle is greedy. He keeps wanting more money. The amount of money that is supposedly coming to him continues to increase. Like at the beginning of the movie, what, he's only supposed to get like five grand, six grand, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know if you noticed this, but he was always getting paid less money than Russo, even yeah. though he was well, the more talented. It, <laughs> uh, I don't know if talented is the right word, but competent. It brings me back to, and I'm glad you said that because now I remember what I actually thought the theme of this movie was and I couldn't fucking find my notes and I'm scatterbrained right now. Um, it reminds me of Payback. With Mel Gibson? Yes! It yes! absolutely to me is like, not a callback to Payback, but it definitely reminds me of that. It's like, no, and he's like, surely you wouldn't be like, what is it, like 10 grand? Like, surely you wouldn't go through all this trouble for 10 grand. It's like, no, it's just that that's what's owed. That's what is owed to me. I don't want more. I just want, and that's even said. Watkins says that to Kurt at the end of this movie. He goes, five, you know, how much, what's the shakedown? He goes, I just want my five grand. He goes, just what you're owed? He goes, just what I'm owed. And then I'm assuming I picked up that Watkins was the person who had the piece of land that he wanted in Kansas City. Like Watkins had essentially like given him a loan or paid for the land and then he was supposed to be paying him off and Watkins kept I, raising the price. That's that's what I gathered. Okay. Uh, because again, there's too much going on at points, but that's what I interpreted. Yeah, it wasn't like explicitly said, but I'm like, that's what I kind of picked up on was basically all of this was... He was paying off the debt to Watkins to get the piece of land that he was owed, which even that, to me, at the end, was not what I was expecting. I thought, like, someone had come and, like, cheated him out of the land, but, like, it seems like Watkins essentially gave him a loan, and then Cheadle, you know, Kurt had to pay that off. So this whole thing was Kurt paying it off, and then he's got an extra five grand in his pocket now. Um, go ahead and say, we, I, I cut you off before I'm... I, I'm going to get into what I what I really think the whole theme of this movie was, because I don't with the whole thing of Kirk getting his land. I am, you know, I'm not going to get political on this this podcast, but like I'm pro capitalism. And I think a lot of what capitalism gets a bad rap today isn't because capitalism is fucked up. I think it's because it's gone kind of unchecked. And I think that we have almost kind of a, a bastardization or kind of, you know, it's a diluted um version of what capitalism is supposed to be because and my def my justification for that is capitalism allows kurt to buy the land in kansas city and basically get himself out of his situation in detroit um so that's why i'm not necessarily overly on the the anti-capitalism um slant on this but i do i do have an opinion on that but i want to let you finish your thing uh, well i i very much think it's it's an anti-capitalist movie and and I think a better, a better way to describe it would be late-stage capitalism because there, there's a difference between capitalism and late-stage capitalism because at a certain point, 
how much money is enough money. And what mm. I find interesting about Kurt is I don't think that Kurt is uh, by any means any sort of like – he 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 doesn't want the five grand only just because morally that's all he's owed. I think there's a more sinister element to it where he even knows that, as Matt Damon kind of points out, if you ever even get to this level, it will be pure luck. But there are checks and balances in place to prevent you from getting to this level. That's why Matt Damon is number one. So astonished that they got there. Ultimately, he doesn't Mm -hmm. care because he knows he's going to get it back in the end, but he's astonished that he even got there. So Kurt, to me, feels like he knows, you know, hey, I'm a black man in the 50s. I can't be Icarus here. I can't get too close to the sun because at a certain point, you know, enough money comes my way and, you know, the man, the system, whatever you want to say, notices that. Well, and why if you just get your five grand, you're good. Nobody's going to come after you for that five grand. But don't be greedy. You know, you have your level that you can rise to and, and don't go beyond it. Well, Watkins even says that the first time when he grabs Kurt and they're leaving the, the boardroom, Kurt says, well, you don't want all that money in there. And Watkins says something along the lines like that's crazy yes. money. I forget that what exactly. That money's too expensive. That money's too expensive. Like he unders like. That's where why Watkins is successful is Watkins understands where where the boundaries are of getting to that, you know. Right. You can make your money, but don't cut into our profit, mm-hmm. or it'll be a problem. And that's that's the biggest point of this movie to me. Um, just and again, the, uh, the the other point that I think makes that for me. Uh, did you do any research on Studebaker at all? Uh, no, I did not. So I did very brief research on Studebaker, but what led to – because this movie uh, calls it out that they merged with, I believe, Packard, which mm-hmm. was another uh, automaker. I was reading up on um, Studebaker. The reason they had to do that merger is they were basically on the verge of bankruptcy because they were the only automaker that had never had a UAW strike, United Auto Workers. Mm-hmm. So as a result, their employees were like the highest paid in the industry, uh, retired with the most benefits, et cetera. But that's ultimately what led them to financial ruin. So it's just interesting to me that the, the movie talks about Studebaker so much and Studebaker failed because they were too pro-employee. They were too uh, for the working man. And the other automakers flourished because they they kind of struck the balance of, like, let's focus more on profit. So it's interesting to me. The movie's almost saying, like, yes, it sucks, you know, the 99 and the 1%. It sucks the situation that we're in. But also there's, a, there's an extreme you can go to on the other direction that is not going to actually benefit the company either. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, That's why the, the, the whole capitalism thing, it, it plays there as well. So what I thought more so, and I'm not going to say that there weren't, you know, some kind of anti-capitalism or, you know, capitalism has to be checked. Uh, to me, a lot of the major themes of the movie revolved around the idea of who who the real crooks are. You know, when – and it, it's always interesting because you have a movie – when you have a movie where your protagonist is essentially like he just got out of prison or he's he's a crook, it's part of a heist, he's trying to, you know, pull one over on it, – it's always one of those – it's already strange because you're rooting for somebody that, you know, societally you would be told not to root for, you know. Um, but what I think is interesting about this movie is that it really goes into – 
just about everybody in this movie is pulling one over on somebody else. Like every like the the line of who is actually the criminal in this movie gets blurred because again, every like Matt Matt Welts uh, or Wertz, he's trying to pull one over because he was trying to steal the plans to sell them to Studebaker ahead of time so that he could run away with his mistress, you know? Um, Vanessa winds up, you know, she winds up being a battered wife. She gets revenge, but then she winds up killing Harold in cold blood. You know, is she a criminal? Like, and then you get down to uh, Mike Lowen, who winds up being, you know, the um, Matt Damon's character, who is just this, you know, basically rich asshole. Um, but again, Everything he's doing, you know, all goes into the antitrust where they're basically trying to capitalize and make as much money as possible. As you said, like, I didn't make the river. I just, you know, paddled the boat type thing. I'm like, at the end of the day, they continue to go like, you never like everyone winds up being a criminal at some point or a crook in this movie with possibly the exception of like Mary, you know, in, in the rest of the Wirtz family. But even then, they're kind of adjacent to that that lifestyle. It's just like. To me, like I said, it just it really wanted to play with the boundary of like, what do you consider a criminal? Is it the guy who, you know, is it a Kurt character who, you know, had to go to prison? Is it the Watkins who's a crime boss? Even John, who is the the head of the, the police department, is essentially paid off, you know, so he winds up being a criminal. So like there's no moral compass in the movie. It basically takes that compass and throws it out the window and says, like, everybody is just trying to succeed and survive. And I think that goes back to that Mary Wirtz comment about, you know, how does everybody do it? And it's like, no, you know, the whole idea is that, you know, everybody is, you know, has the white picket fence and is doing it by the book, but nobody is. Everybody's cutting corners. Everybody's cheating and, and basically stealing from each other in order to keep up this facade, you know, to keep up the lifestyle. Um, and I think that that's, to me, a lot of the movie revolved around that as kind of the, the misconception and redefining who is the actual crook. Are we all crooks? Are, you know, if everybody's a crook, is anybody a crook, you know, at, at the end of the day? Yeah, and, and I mean, I think what you said can absolutely be true, but then ultimately the layer, the capitalism layer I put on it is, yes, all of you fight for your place in the sun, do everything that you want to do, but ultimately those at the top the the game will end the same like well, yeah they make the rules the, so therefore you know they always make sure right, the it, house always wins you know there you go and, and you made the point of matt damon bringing up or matt damon the fact that not only did he get his money back but he got it with interest and all for the cost of it just being out of his hands for a little while mm -hmm. that to me is a is a nice shorthand for how corporations get bailed out you know, they get bailed out so that they can go by and rebuy their stock back. So it's like they're getting paid and rewarded on top of getting paid and rewarded. So uh, and then your, your point about everybody's pulling one over on each other. I love towards the beginning, uh, Frank Russo, when he's with his mistress, um, there's literally she uh, is complaining because her husband thinks she's a schemer. And yeah. uh, she she asked him directly, do you think I'm a schemer? And he says, I think you have ulterior motives, but I think that's sexy. And I was like, that right there is just kind you could you could that could be the tagline of the movie. I think you have ulterior motives, but I think that's sexy. Like right away, <laughs> it's just it does a good job of telling you what this movie is going to be about. Yeah. 
Alrighty, sir. Uh, With that said, do yeah. you want to jump into a chop shop, or do you have a little bit more to to, to jump in with? Um, I think I'm just making sure that there were no other lines of dialogue that I wrote down because I fucking love them. Uh, oh, the last one that I like is uh, uh, da, 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 da. Uh, you seem worried about how people describe you. And then he responds. The only thing I'm worried about is you fucking this up. <laughs> like the exchange between those two felt so real when Don Cheadle meets Benicio del Toro for the first time. Again, the level of care with the dialogue I really appreciated. So, yeah, just wanted to mention that one more time. And, uh, yeah, we can get some Chop Shop. Excellent. Do you want to start us off? I'm gonna I'm gonna fully admit I have a light chop. It's a it's a it's a micro chop shop this week. Um, I didn't have, you know, I I deeply enjoyed the movie. There was nothing really for me to anchor and jump off of to to kind of go on a wild tale through this one. I did have kind of a an addition or a change I would make towards the end of the movie that I've kind of hinted at, but I don't know. Do you do you want to start it off or do you want me to take it? Uh, I think we're kind of in the same boat this week. Mine's light. I think that's going to be a, a, an extension of how good the movie is. If the movie is great, it's hard to do a chop shop. So I think anytime we, this happens, it's ultimately a compliment to the movie. Um, but yeah, I kind of just, I, for my chop shop, I would shift that focus. Um, you know, because for a moment I was like, is this movie going to be just undercover? You think it's about don Cheadle and benicio del toro but then maybe halfway through the movie they go away i guess my only change and i don't even know that i would want to change the movie but if i had to and create some sort of new vehicle so to speak i would have the the character focus change to the the two housewives that seem to either have a secret relationship or wish they had one I wanted to see them somehow get the money and then go on some sort of thelma and louise you know um, blaze of glory, you know, give them a chance. To, I hate when people say this, but I'm just going to say it, uh, you know, to live in their truths. That That's what I wanted mm -hmm. to see happen. Um, basically society, uh, shitting on them. They get their revenge by kind of duping all of these men out of the money so that they can run away together. Um, so yeah, light chop shop, but no, that would be my one minor tweak. Did we ever find out what the bird feeder incident was? They kept that was one of the things that they kept bringing up, and I never like. I know that the daughter came off as kind of weird. Like, did the daughter break it, or like I never? That was one of the few things that they never actually kind of defined for you. That and you know, when Kurt fucked up the Gotham job, um, and then everything still winds up happening at the Gotham. But I just, I never. What was the the bird feeder incident? I, well, I thought I thought it was just when that girl came over and that when they were being held hostage, I thought that was the incident that was called back to. It's just the fact that she couldn't come out to play or whatever they were going to do with the bird feeder. I don't know. I thought that I, they, I thought she was, was replacing the that. bird feeder, or giving her a new one, like something happened to, to the bird feeder. Like there was that problem with the bird feeder. And it's like I just thought that there was like there was something more to that 
that never, like I said, I don't know if it was implied what happened with it or if it was one of those kind of like you were saying, like a MacGuffin or Red Herring more so. It's just like it kept being brought up because even Matt, when he's talking to his mistress at the Humpty Dumpty Inn, um, <laughs> he, it never, he brings up like two days ago, then there was the bird feeder thing. And I was going to say something then. And it's like, what the fuck was the bird feeder incident? Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I assumed it was a red herring, but I, I I mean, again, that just goes back to my complaint about it being overstuffed. I just yeah. feel like there's too many directions this movie goes in. But does that relate to your chop shop? No, not at all. I just made me think of it oh, when you okay, brought okay. Yeah, so my chop shop, um, I'm, I want that Mexican standoff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, it's less Mexican standoff. It's almost like that uh, with a, a little bit of the, you know, the movie Clue. So essentially what I want is it's a it's a heist turned into a whodunit, you know, type situation where basically when we get to the boardroom where, uh, you know, Ronald and Kurt are are getting their money. They're they're giving the muffler design to uh, to Matt Damon's character, Mike Lowe. And um, I want all the characters wind up showing up at the Gotham Hotel, but not everybody winds up in the boardroom. So I want everyone to end up in the boardroom with the exception of Vanessa, who is Frank's wife um, slash Ronald's lover, and then Matt Wirtz. Um, my thought is Vanessa will still be in her hotel room. Matt winds up being in the lobby. He wound up following Naismith there because um, he's trying to track him because, you know, there was going to be a deal. He's going to try and see if he can't, you know, rekindle that or somehow get part of that deal back. So he winds up in the in the lobby at some point. So everyone else, and by everyone else I mean Kurt, Ronald, Watkins, who's the gangster, the, the head gangster, John, the cop, Bill Duke, yeah, um, Matt Wirtz, he's in the lobby. Mike Lowen, who is the the rich uh, consultant for the auto industry, um, Matt Damon's character, um, Naismith, who is the guy for Studebaker. Um, he was the one who basically kind of started off the entire situation um, and are, are all in the boardroom. So it, it, it's going to have to be at night in order for this to work. So they're not doing this during the middle of the day. No, no bit. No, no problem here. Right. So the storm comes, rolls in. Typical, typical whodunit situation. Lightning strikes. The lights go out. Lightning strikes again. We see a commotion. We're seeing the light coming through the blinds, much like it did during the day. Um, it gives kind of a cage feeling to the to the scene. Um, you know, all these these people are locked in there together. Uh, suddenly, there's several shots are fired. Uh, more lightning. We get maybe a, a couple close-ups of like Kurt's face and like just some hor horrified-looking faces, and then the lights come back on. And what do you know? Naismith, the man from Studebaker, is dead, hunched over the table. All right, he's been shot, he's killed, and Kurt, Ronald, Watkins, and John are all holding guns, basically kind of pointing each other. All right, mm -hmm. so this is the part where you know uh, how we would shoot this. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but essentially, I wanted to go into like what the motives for each of these characters, because this is where we're going to have to go into maybe Mike Lowen because he is kind of a, a smarty pants. He knows most of the characters in this room, or maybe all of them kind of explain why they think somebody else would have shot Naismith. But essentially, he goes down the room with everybody doing a bit of a mon monologue or dialogue. Um, you know, 
the motives are as follows. Ronald wanted to shoot Lowen because he knew who he was. Because of the whole thing about um, Mike Lowen bringing up the fact that he knew him when he applied for GM. So now, you know, Ronald being a, a career crook is like, he knows my face. I've got I've to kill Lowen so that everybody else in this room, it doesn't really matter. But Lowen knows who I am, knows my involvement. John the cop tried to shoot Ronald because he had half of the blueprints and John is still working for Lowen, right? Um, and that's kind of how we figure out that Lowen or you know had hired John as, as his, his muscle. That he you know he's got the, the cops in his pocket. Watkins, the gangster, tried to shoot John, the cop, because he thought he was there to arrest him. Because again, not all these characters know why they're in the room together. So Watkins is under the impression that he's be like he's been set up by maybe Kurt or Ronald, and he's there to be arrested. Kurt. Okay, so that's that's kind of everything what happens. Then what gets revealed is that essentially Kurt shoots Vanessa, who actually shot Naismith, because she was trying <laughs> to shoot Kurt so that Ronald would get all of the money. So Vanessa understands that Ronald's supposed to be splitting the money with Kurt. Vanessa, like you said, she's a schemer, She's she, but that's sexy. So her thought is if she kills Kurt, Ronald will get all of the money, and then she will get all of the money with Ronald. Kurt winds up shooting Vanessa out of self-defense, and Vanessa winds up accidentally shooting Naismith. So Naismith winds up being an innocent bystander in this whole thing. Matt winds up being a witness to all of it, and he uses that to bribe Lowen into giving him money so that he can take care of him and his family. Maybe that's how we get to the point where now Mary's like, okay, now we've got all this money. I'm going to take a little girl's trip with my true love, my best friend, who I don't remember the character's name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lowen had no motive or no desire to be there, so he essentially winds up kind of just paying off everybody handsomely to leave, writes off everything as an opportunity lost. Like, again, he's not worried about the money. He's in it. He needs to figure out how this whole thing got screwed up and all that. Ronald becomes an informant for John. Kurt gets his land and pays off his debt with Watkins because of the money that is exchanged there. Matt rejoins his family. Vanessa is dead. Naismith is dead. Um, so that's kind of how I wound up reconcluding the movie with this kind of whodunit spin, kind of Mexican standoff. Or now, you know, it's everyone trying to figure out what, what everybody's motives are. And essentially, none of it really matters. And, you know, everybody, everybody kind of walks off and does their thing. I am impressed because I, in my head, because uh, this is audio only, we don't we don't do a video component. I am imagining you standing in front of a cork board with uh, string and yarn, connecting a bunch of different photos. Just because the sheer amount of names you just said in the past four and a half minutes, uh, again, it, it stands to reason that an overstuffed movie will have an overstuffed chop shop. Uh, yes, and again, that's only a handful of the characters because there's still plenty of other people who were not brought up (laughs) such as Charlie who gets his, I did think that that was one weird thing is when Charlie gets shot, that should have been a much more like, holy shit moment for me. But for for some reason it wasn't, I don't know if it's because I was expecting something weird like that to happen or just the way that that scene was shot. But like when Charlie gets shot and then collapses, I was like, okay, yep. I, I kind of, I saw something like that was going to happen, you know? Yeah, I, I think you could kind of just tell that his energy, not not his his performance was not bad by any means, but you could kind of tell that he did not fit the vibe of of 
uh, Cheadle and Del Toro. Mm -hmm. So I just assumed for that reason he was not going to be around long. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, we were right. Well, and that's another one of those where, unfortunately, the uh, advertising uh, spoils or the marketing spoils the movie because if you look at the, the, po the, the poster or the thumbnail for No Sudden Move, uh, Colkin's character is nowhere to be found <laughs> on that poster. So yeah. it's very easy to realize he's the odd man out there. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, really quickly, I wanted to mention, I, I forgot the other movie earlier uh, that would pair well with this. It's called Killing Them Softly with Brad Pitt. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, no, I have not. So I, I'd recommend it if, if you right. like the vibe of this movie. But Good deal. Um, so as much as I would love to do a market value for this, um, we are entering a new era of, of cinematography in which movies are not fucking released to theaters. Um, so I'm not sure how much of a permanent staple that's going to be to the Hollywood landscape. Because this is a, you would expect this to have been a, a movie that would have hit theaters. Um, Absolutely. But it's, you know, it's HBO, Disney, Netflix, and all of those groups kind of testing the waters with um, straight to, uh, I mean, can you believe it? Can you, could you imagine if you had said that Soder, Sodermeyer, Soderberg, Soder, Soden, Soderberg, Soderberg <laughs> would have done a direct-to-home movie 10 years ago, people would have fucking laughed if they didn't understand, like, basically direct-to-home or, you know, direct-to-video is, is not as much of an insult as it used to be, you know, because of the no, streaming absolutely. service. I mean, this is this is the man that can attract, you know, uh, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Matt Damon, mm -hmm. uh, amongst others, to the same project. So, yeah, the, the thought that he would be doing direct-to-home video, yeah, yeah would, would blow my mind if I went back uh, in time and talked to myself and told myself that was going to happen. Um, but all just a very long-winded way kind of like this movie of getting to the point uh, there is no market value to do there's i could not find budget for this movie um and i certainly could not find any like what it made because it was not released in theaters so um i guess just going forward if we have one of these streaming movies like this we will not have a market watch we will probably just have this discussion every time so <laughs> Now, what about tagline? Did oh, it have we, a tagline? This, thank God, this one did have a tagline. Um, okay. So, are you ready? Are you ready for the tag and title? Yes, sir. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. All right, for those new or maybe unfamiliar, for whatever reason, this is the segment we know. We love it. I'm going to give Travis three taglines for the movie no sudden move all right his object well one of them is the official tagline for the movie or one of the official taglines sometimes movies have more than one one of them is a tagline for a movie adjacent which i will do uh, you know when we get there i'll tell you what it is and the third one is a tagline created by yours truly so travis's objective is to listen to the three taglines and then tell me which one of them is the official tagline for the movie. So, Travis, it sounds like you're ready. So we're going to jump right in. You ready? Ready to rock. Let's do this. All right. Your three taglines are just when you think you've got it all figured out. See how the other half steals. And trust is a setup. 
Those are three taglines. Um, I like the middle one the best, but I don't think that's it. Um, so the one you like the best is that... see how the other half steals. That's your favorite of the three and... taglines. Yes, okay. and I'm thinking that's going to be the one that is from a movie adjacent to this. Am I correct? Is that your final answer? Well, I I, I will. The, I think the the actual tagline is trust is a setup. I think that's the actual tagline. Is that your final uh, answer? That's my final answer. Congratulations, sir! You nailed it this week. Trust is a setup is the official tagline of No Sudden Move. It's not bad. It's it's fine. See how the other half steals is the tagline for another Sotermeyer, Soder, Soderberg. I'll get his name eventually. A movie, Logan Lucky. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Um, which if another another heist caper movie. If I'm completely honest, of the two, I probably like Logan Lucky better. Um, same. I think it has more character than this movie. I again loved this movie. Nothing against this one. It is definitely more of a time period piece, and therefore it has a different energy and a different feel. Plus, it has that shitty fisheye lens. Um. Whereas Logan Lucky is almost just a, it's a bad news beer, beers, bad news bears, comical <laughs> version of a heist. And again, just the, the acting and that I just, I really did love Logan Lucky. Um, both again, same director. So you can expect the same thing. A, a great dialogue, great character development, stuff like that. Um, but yes, see how the other half steals is from Logan Lucky. And meaning the first one is the one you made up. Yes, just when you think you've got it all figured out was something I came up with. I like that. I, I would be willing to go out on a limb and say that's been a tagline for a movie somewhere in history. Yeah, probably. I, I wouldn't be surprised. It's a little long, but it's it's not bad. So Yeah. Um Well, that brings us to the end of the show where, you know, we like to give our recommendations. So you know, I don't think that there is a physical release of this movie, but hypothetically, if there were, let's go ahead and go into the into the details. Travis, is this something you would own on a Blu-ray? Is this something you would recommend streaming? Is it something you would buy a streaming service just so you could watch the movie? Is it something to put on the background? Like, where where does it, you know, without giving a, a strict hard number or anything like that, where would you put this movie? Um, I, For me, it's going to be a... If you already have the streaming platform that it's on, I definitely recommend watching it. Uh, the as much as I love it, I, I wouldn't physically own it just because. I mean, you you mentioned well, we've mentioned similar movies in this podcast that are all just a little bit better than this. Like I think Logan Lucky is better than this. I think Killing Them Softly is better than this. I think Mel Gibson's Payback is better than this. Um, and then. The cherry on top is the fish eye. Like I, because I, I don't know that I'll ever watch this movie again. And to me, that's a bad sign of a, you know, whatever, whether you want to call it a gimmick or an artistic choice. If that is the reason that I'll never watch this movie again, that it's bad to have done that, in my opinion. I, I know it, it might sound obvious, and uh, you know there might be some film snobs out there like that will break down the importance of that fisheye lens, but all to me that it accomplishes is makes this movie's rewatchability plummet. So I'd, I'd say stream it once, especially if you're a Soderbergh fan, um, but it's a lesser work even in his own uh, oeuvre. 
Yeah. What about you? I, I, I fall in the same vein. Definitely watch it at least once. I think it is it is a fun ride. I think it gets a little... At a certain point, you do have to stop trying to figure out what the hell's going on, which is hard for me because that's one of my favorite things and like kind of the caper type. It was definitely with a caper type heist movie. I was waiting at the end to show like, oh, this is how John Cheadle did everything. Like, this is who he talked to. And like, this was the double cross. And like, I was glad we didn't get to that. You know, that it was that on the rails for a for a heist movie. Um, I could see me watching it again, but it's not going to be something I pick. It's going to be something where. I'm hanging out with somebody like, hey, have you ever seen, you know, No Sudden Move? And I'm like, oh, no, that's a great movie. Like, if you haven't seen it, you should go ahead and put it on right now. Mainly one of those situations in which, like, I don't want to have to continue looking at other movies. Like, if you've shown interest in this, it's enough for me to watch it again and for me to not have to go through the rigmarole of, like, picking another fucking movie you know, because there's a billion movies out there. So um, sure. that's where I would go. Like, it's not one I would own. It's definitely one I would you know, if someone wanted to watch it that hasn't, I would I would be fine putting it back on and watching it again. Um, it might be more fun the second go round um, than the first, but it is definitely worth at least one watch. The performances yeah, alone, I, the performances alone are, are worth watching. Yeah, performance and dialogue at, makes it a must watch. Um, it, whether you want to rewatch it a ton, I think it would reward it from the the plot standpoint because you wouldn't have to worry about that anymore because you know where it ends but if i were to rewatch it I, I i literally mean this when i say there'd be a couple scenes where i'd have to look away so that i don't throw up mm -hmm. and again i just think that's a bad bad thing it is and it, that's one of those weird things where i'm like i just don't is it i wonder if you talk to him if it's like did you just film the whole movie first and then like well because you filmed it with the fisheye lens and it wasn't like it was a physical fisheye lens it wasn't a, an effect that you put to it it's like well, fuck, like, we're kind of, like, we're committed at this point. Like, we can't pull out of the fisheye lens. Like, I didn't realize it was going to be this jarring. Because, um, yeah, it is It is just... Because at one point, I think somebody said, like, oh, it, that was the traditional... Like, some of the history was, like, that was... They would have used that kind of lens at that time, like a fisheye lens. But I'm like, they also didn't shoot in widescreen back then. So I'm like, I feel like you're kind of... you're cherry picking what you want for an artistic choice with this because i'm like i've watched plenty of movies from that time period and they didn't make me sick because i had a fucking fish on lens i'm like it's i feel like that was a restriction of the technology and then they made it work whereas like you kind of you know reverse engineered this and it just it doesn't work for me it does it would it'd be interesting if they re-released this the the non-fisheye well again they can't i mean i guess you could try and use a, a computer to reverse that like they do with like GoPro cameras, but it is it is just so bizarre why he would use it and the way he used it. Yeah, I I think my mission after this podcast is to find a definitive answer if one exists on why he used it because I I don't really care what it is it 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 doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there you have it. Watch the movie. It's good. It's a fun ride. Just know. You might get a little motion sick um, while you're doing it. So don't do it drunk or any other influence because yeah, that's probably no, no, no. only going to make it worse. Yeah, and I would say just the other general recommendation is is don't focus on all of the moving parts mm -hmm. because there's too many. Uh, and ultimately, the joy of the movie is outside of those moving parts, in my opinion. Yeah, to, to put it in more generic terms like focus on the forest not the trees 
because you'll get lost in there the you trees. Go. <laughs> Perfectly said. You got anything else before we get out of here? No, I think that'll do it. Oh, it was your cue to say goodbye. But oh, am I gonna say you want to uh, say goodbye? You want to say goodbye first, or uh, can I can I sit in the back? I just don't want you to fuck I'll, this I'll, up. I'll say good. Uh, <laughs> uh, you seem to be worried about how the podcast ends. I'm just worried you're gonna fuck it up. Bye. Ah. Beautiful. Yes, sir. I thought that went well. Mm-hmm. All righty. Now it's your time to shine. Yeah, how many times do you think it's going to take me to get through this, bad boy? I have faith in you. <laughs> Here we go.